have never found out what is calling in the air tonight. For a long time, I wondered what it could be. As I was trying to figure it out, I realized that I had gotten it all wrong. That it was not at all about finding out who or what was calling, but what was happening with the air. Because as far as sound is concerned, air is an indiscriminate medium. It will carry any sound, no matter its origin, no matter its nature. And it will carry the sound even if you cannot hear it. The voices of people you never met. The sound of a tree falling in an impenetrable forest with no one around. The droning of a jet plane far above your head in an open sky. They all leave their traces in the air. Fill it with sound at any conceivable moment. The sky is reverberating with that sound all the time. And we can count ourselves lucky that we are deaf to it. It would drive us crazy, this air dripping in sound. So, the air is full and indiscriminate. It does not distinguish between relevant and irrelevant sounds, between what is audible to us and what is not. the fact that Phil Collins never actually talked about something calling, but something coming in the air tonight, only proves this point. But it was not Phil Collins who made me realize that the air is not just empty space. It was something else entirely something much larger, much more unwieldy, and almost extinct. A blimp. The Hindenburg, to be more precise. This is World of Blimps.
to humanity. You have heard these words before, but you will not remember them the way you remember other words. Herbert Morrison, the man who had been given the opportunity to cover the docking of Zeppelin LZ-129 Hindenburg in New Jersey for the Chicago radio station WLS, has imbued these words with an operatic, lapidary, and unforgettable sense of tragedy that cannot be unheard. May 6th, 1937 should have been a good day. The Hindenburg's arrival in New Jersey after a two and a half day journey from Frankfurt should have marked a triumphant occasion. Another step in humanity's seemingly unstoppable conquest of the elements but which instead turned into one of the most intimately experienced disasters the world had ever witnessed. Most intimate because for the first time, you didn't have to be there to witness the event. To witness something live without physically being there. That was a new sensation. To be clear, the broadcast was not live exactly. It was originally just meant to be recorded by Morrison and his sound engineer, Charlie Nelson. In the 1930s, American news broadcasts consisted only of the live talk of the hosts and guests. Recorded materials were rarely ever used until Morrison's Hindenburg recording, that is. At 4.30 p.m. on May 7th, Morrison was interviewed live on NBC Blue in a segment which featured excerpts from his recording. The first time a recording had been played on the NBC. Take a moment to imagine what that must have felt like. sitting in your living room or in the office, hearing the recording. Morrison's voice, it's trembling, it's quivering, his gasping for breath, mixed with the sheer despair of someone who feels lost for words, but is forced to keep on talking nonetheless.
that would have made you feel closer to anything else you had ever heard on a radio broadcast before. It would have felt as if it was happening in that moment. You would have been there, transported from your surroundings, listening intently to that irresistibly compelling voice and the event it described. It would have felt as if you had been there. But the intimacy of immediate presence, the romance of being there in the moment, even though you are far away, turns out to be colder, more calculated than you thought. The warmth and sympathy we feel, for example, when we believe we are witnessing Morrison's terror, which we hear in his voice beyond the shadow of a doubt, is not all there is. Because what he first does when he sees the Hindenburg burst into flames, which is the moment which has also been captured on the cover of Led Zeppelin's first album. Morrison's reaction to that moment is disturbingly rational for a broadcaster. He tells his sound engineer to make sure that he catches everything on tape. before he allows himself to be overcome by the tragedy unfolding before his eyes. Don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting that Herbert Morrison was a cold or calculating person. What I am saying is that the intimacy of an external voice is unreliable, suspicious even, because you can never truly gauge the distance between yourself and the person talking. Whatever Morrison makes you feel, you realize that it is just that. He makes you feel.
It is not primarily about the situation. It is not about the tragedy. It is about the fact that the recording was made with you in mind. As an external narrator, Morrison excels. But he also insinuates himself into your consciousness through his voice. It is not that he is trying to deceive you, but that his voice, so close to you and so full of feeling, cannot help but affect you in a certain way. It is infectious. It fills the very air between you and him. And it triggers a certain state in you. No matter where you are. As long as you keep that voice in your ear. That is exactly how some people thought about the radio back then. As a way of filling up the air with electromagnetic waves that transmitted not just signals, but thoughts and emotions through the sky. That humans were themselves like antennae on top buildings, who were mysteriously charged with these waves. Waves that you could not see, but that crashed over you the way rain did. That enveloped you the way fog did. That made you feel cosmically alone, the way the absolute dark of the night did. In that sense, zeppelins and blimps were not the only thing that had conquered the sky, but so had human voices. Think about that. Voice layered over voice, over voice, over voice, from the horizon up inflating the air with an endless profusion of talk. is a frightening image. One that would be even more frightening if the BBC 
had ever developed its remitter device beyond the prototype stage. A remitter is very similar to a transmitter. But instead of transmitting new radio waves, it is capable of capturing and retransmitting old signals. That is, broadcasts that have been transmitted at some point in the past and that were still present in the radio sphere in the form of so-called idioform matrices, thus allowing for the voices of the past to be brought back to life in the present and to prevent anything from getting lost. Now, admittedly, this remitter is a fictional device, but one whose fictionality only makes us realize that it already exists in a much more powerful and much more invidious incarnation. Instead of the radio remitter, we have a global network of practically unlimited space in which things do not get lost because they cease to be recorded, but because too much is recorded for anyone to keep track of it. Imagine every word ever recorded on the internet and transmitted over a wireless connection, etching out a tiny bit of space in the air. Imagine the body that could be made from that. It would be a mass large enough to create a planetary field of gravity, which yet most likely would lack any gravity whatsoever. The sound produced by this world of noise would be deafening, impossible to listen to without getting lost. There would barely be any room left to breathe, let alone listen. start. The development of wireless telegraphy or that of the radio? I am not entirely sure. I am certain, however, that it has its origin with the thought that the air was no longer the realm of naturally airborne creatures only, but that it was empty space 
ripe for the taking. The blimp is the quintessential symbol of disbelief because it brought to popular consciousness the fact that air was an entity with a mass. One that was actually heavier than hydrogen or helium, which allowed blimps to fly. It made people realize that the air was a place for humans to travel through and a place to advertise. Goodyear, the company that became famous for building blimps that served commercial air travel and advertising, is the manifestation of this spirit. Goodyear turned the air into a road and a billboard only shortly after the invention of the radio had begun to fill it with noise. But Goodyear had not pioneered aerial advertising. A daredevilish pilot named J.C. Savage had patented his technique for writing out messages with his plane in 1922. His company was aptly called Savage Skywriting. That same year, he wrote the words Castrol, Persil, and Daily Mail into the London sky three years before Goodyear would see its first advertising blimp take flight. But what are words written out in steam compared to the fixity of a blimp? Steam disperses. It leaves no trace much like our voices, or so we think. You could layer millions of voices over each other, but at the end of their breath, they would still all dissipate into silence. While a blimp can remain afloat for a long time, it cannot stay in the air forever. It would inevitably have to land and it would bring down its message with it. New blimps could be sent up and new ones after dose and new ones after dose again and again and again but they would all have to come down and their messages would begin to pile up. We would be able to trace the volume of our civilization by those piles. 
we would have a physical sense of how much noise we were creating. But that is not what the situation is like. Humanity has not opted for blimps, but for skywriting, passing voices in the sky, first in the form of steam, then as electromagnetic waves, whether for the radio or wireless internet, filling up not just the air around us, but our minds with more voices than we could possibly digest. This intractable onslaught of other perspectives is what makes us yearn for an external instance. Say, a narrator like David Attenborough to sort through all the shit we should not or do not need to hear. But that wish for a narrator, of course, is also part of that world of noise. It is Herbert Morrison telling Charlie Nelson to make sure he gets everything on tape. It is not the cure, but the very symptom of our helplessness in the face of the intolerable insight that we are not made to resist the incessant, cacophonous hemorrhaging of voices that makes up the background to our daily lives these days. Days in which white noise seems quaint. A good setting for meditation rather than a nervous, tingling static. What we need is for it all to slow down to be turned to a more digestible frequency. A slower, more plodding, more leaden form of communication, like the one symbolized by blimps. There is no telling where blimps will take us. No one knows where they come from. At least, no one knows where the word comes from. And it is such an extraordinary word. Deceptively simple. At once natural. Sounding like a word you had always known ever since you were a small child. But also strange and vaguely, disconcertingly Germanic. But who came up with it? According to one theory, it developed from the classification of airships in the American or British military. More specifically, the categorization of airships by design. 
distinguishing those with a rigid inner shell, like zeppelins, from those that had no such inner framework and, practically, were giant balloons. In other words, there were rigid and limp airships, which would have been classified as type A and B, respectively, or, by extension, A rigid and B limp. The Hindenburg, for reference, was a semi-rigid airship, or, if you are not an optimist, a semi-limp one. There is not sufficient evidence for this theory. And given that the army has an obsessive habit for creating and recording its own terminologies, we can safely assume that the word blimp has a different origin. J.R. Tolkien conjectured that the word was a combination of blister and lump. While it is intriguing to think about a sky filled with blimps as lumpy and blistered, there is little appeal in this theory beyond its poetic potential. The most entertaining, and therefore perhaps also most convincing, explanation involves one A.D. Cunningham, an officer in the Royal Naval Air Service, who visited an airship station in December of 1915, and who, upon inspecting one of the ships, snapped his thumb against its outer shell to produce the sound blimp. There is a good chance that we will never know for sure the provenance of the word blimp. Just as much as we will never know the names of the people whose voices fill our minds every day. Whose minds we are exposed to every day. Not just in conversations, but even when we are not consciously paying attention. The voices we overhear on the way to work, waiting in line for something. The podcasts and TV shows we have on in the background. The half-processed captions and tweets we go through while filling in the space between one thing and another. Much like the sky, our heads can feel like they are on the verge of bursting, even though there seems to be nothing there. Nothing else than what is usually there, at least 
because it is impossible to give shape to that disquietude, that chaotic murmur, just as it is impossible to make visible the voices whose sound is carried by the air at all times. Even if we could make them visible, it probably would not be helpful. It would not bring us any consolation. Knowing whose voices we are hearing, knowing their origin, knowing who was calling in the air tonight, would only give a harder shape to our confusion, to the jumble of voices under the sky. A sky which also has no graspable origin and which also needs none. Because that is what we have gotten wrong. We were never meant to turn the sky into anything, never meant to find its beginning or its end, never meant to treat it as a billboard or a road, or as a sounding board for our thoughts and opinions. We were just meant to claim it as our own, not as a civilization, not even as a species, but each and every one of us for themselves as a thing that is finished as it is, without the need to add anything else. You know, the way the artist Eve Klein did when he found himself on a beach outside of Nice in the summer of 1947. Only 19 years old, gazing up at the sky, he saw something there. He lifted up his hand and signed it. It was his first piece of art and arguably his best. The sky, Klein realized, is something that should be free from the demands of our racing minds. It should be something that makes us forget that everything around us proliferates at the breakneck speed of light and sound. It is something that is completely unlike humanity, slow, lasting, and free of the ephemerality of voices. And that emptiness, that we can claim for ourselves. And in that emptiness, there is solace.
This is World of Noise, signing off the air.